We'll come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Matthew's Gospel? This is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 702. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? I want to read our passage for us, but let's stand to express our, our unity together as well as our uh, appreciation and respect for God's Word. Matthew writes this, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went away on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, you entrusted me with two talents. Look, check it out. I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said. Lovely day, isn't it? Here's the thing. I I knew you were a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you, you knew I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is familiar from last week. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Happy Father's Day. This is God's word. You may be seated. I really don't plan to have such depressing passages on Mother's and Father's Day. (laughs) I really could probably do better to look at that. Let me pray for us once more and ask God to be with us and open our eyes and ears as we come to his word now. Spirit of God, we ask you to be with us now as we come to your word. We want to come to you this morning as those who submit ourselves underneath the word and do not stand above it in judgment. We want to learn from you this morning. We want to be taught by your spirit. 
And I'm trusting, Father, that you have worked through me through this week as I've prepared this message to say and speak the things that you want us all to hear. I'm asking you to work in each heart that you've drawn here this morning just as you worked in my heart as I've encountered this this week. And I'm asking you to accomplish amazing things this morning. You tell us in your word when you send it out, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose now in each one of us. And as I always ask, eternal God, move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. The big one. It's, it's coming, you know. The big one is coming. You know, this 9.0 magnitude earthquake that's going to take place off the coast. It's going to send tsunami waves 20 meters high crashing towards British Columbia as well as to our neighbors to the north and south. Thankfully, Global News has presented a terrifying infographic for us to see exactly what they're talking about. This is what experts say. This is, this is what's coming. And if you've lived in Vancouver for any length of time, this has just become an understood part of our existence, albeit a troubling part, that always lurks constantly in the back of our minds. We keep hearing about this happening, and we know someday it will. George, Pat, I'm sorry you guys just moved here. Welcome. This will now be part of your existence as well. But although we have no way of predicting when this exactly is going to happen, we do have an opportunity. We've got an opportunity, and now at least, to seek to be ready for such an event, right? We've got an opportunity to be ready, demonstrating by our actions that we actually believe this day is coming. That's how we demonstrate our belief that it's coming, through our actions. And yet, how many of us make use of that opportunity, really? I'm not talking about living in a constant state of fear. I'm not talking about sending your kids to school with life jackets. What I mean is, how many of us honestly are working to be ready for a day like this, that although we don't know when it's coming, we are assured it is coming? Because it's, all, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I know one day that's happening. Yeah, I, I recognize it's coming. But isn't the proof that we believe that day is coming demonstrated in our actions? Actually going out and purchasing that earthquake preparedness kit? Actually storing water somewhere in a place that we can access? All this stuff that they tell us to do. How many of you have actually done it? I haven't. Just like the belief, you know, that we're going to die one day causes us to purchase life insurance. We believe that's coming, so we actually purchase life insurance. How many of us demonstrate a belief that this day is coming by actually being ready for it? Because here's the thing, being given an opportunity is one thing. But our actions are usually the biggest indicator of whether or not that opportunity has truly been taken. We're continuing this morning in this new teaching series we began last Sunday entitled Stories of the Kingdom. Looking uh, through a number of the more well-known stories, often called parables of Jesus, told during his earthly ministry where he teaches us about the kingdom of heaven, teaching us about what the kingdom is like teaching us about what is valued there as well as what is despised there. Similar to the way I've said uh, newspaper headlines can show us what a city is like. We can see what a city is like by what is listed in the newspaper headlines. Here, Jesus' stories of the kingdom show us what his kingdom will be like. Now, as we said last week, Jesus' purposes for teaching parables, 
Remember, to both reveal and conceal the truth about the kingdom. That's going to be really important for us to remember now as we begin to start working through these stories in the coming weeks, along with the reality of Jesus' heart behind that. Remember, he said, my, my heart is that you would hear, that you would see, that you would turn and be healed. If you weren't here last week, I would honestly very strongly recommend you go back this week and watch or listen to that first message. I'm not, I'm not trying to get clinks on our, uh, clicks on our YouTube page. This is important because it's really foundational for everything we're going to say throughout the coming series. So I would encourage you to go back this week and listen to that if you weren't here. Because it's undoubtedly a purpose. Jesus' purpose that we talked about is going to show up here once again this morning. As we look at this story recorded in Matthew 25, often called the parable of the talents. For here we have a story set in its proper context, which is also about being ready for an inevitable event that we can't predict, namely the return of Jesus. And our belief in whether or not that day is truly coming, as well as our attitude towards Jesus himself, according to this story, will be clearly demonstrated, not in our words, but in our actions. That is, how we invest the opportunities that God has given us in our lives from the day He gives them until the day He returns. To understand how Jesus unpacks that in this story this morning, I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. I want to show you a good and faithful investment, and then finally, a missed opportunity. Okay? A good and faithful investment and a missed opportunity. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again with me to Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. Follow along with me as we look now at this first story of the kingdom. Now before we can dig in deeply, there are three quick things I want to establish with us as we start into this first story. Two of them are more general. The, the third one is more specific to the text. First of all, Already, relating back to what we said last week about Jesus' purposes in telling these stories, the first thing that we need to say is that he has one. Okay, Jesus has a purpose in telling us these stories. Okay, Jesus is not some kind of ancient Near Eastern Stuart McLean who just likes to tell stories for our entertainment. That's not what he's doing here. These, these, are, these stories have a meaning and an intent and a purpose behind them. Maybe that seems self-evident to you, but I think it's worth saying because once we know that, once we've established that there's intent behind this story, it's going to cause us to approach it differently. Now we know we should be looking for something in the story to understand. Second thing to establish, once we know Jesus has some intended meaning behind the story, that is, that these stories are essentially allegorical in nature, we need to have some kind of framework to understand how to interpret them. How do we draw out what the meaning is? How do we know what that is? This is important because over the years, if, if you've been in church for a long time, you know there's all kinds of goofy things people come up with when they try to interpret these parables. Some, I would think we would say, are well outside of what many would say is a responsible interpretation. And while I'd never suggest that anyone's interpretation of the Bible is always going to be infallible, what we saw last week, I think, is going to help us here. If we, if we look at these stories with the idea that we're seeking the revealer of God's truth, we're seeking Jesus and not trying to figure out the da Vinci code of each parable, I think that's going to give us a confidence that we can come to these parables, and he will, as we are related to him, he will reveal the meaning to us. He will show us. And helpfully, also, in the New Testament, we've got a number of places, as we said, where Jesus did. He took his disciples aside after he taught the parables and said, let me, let me show you what these mean. 
Let me help you understand what the meaning is here. That helps us now to take that framework and apply it here. We can understand the stories based on the way Jesus interpreted them. Finally, it won't surprise any of you if you've been here for any length of time to hear me say that the context of this passage, okay, where it sits is vitally important for our understanding of it. Because if you look back at the chapter just before Matthew 25, Matthew 24, it's all about Jesus talking about the end of time. He's talking about the end of time when he's going to return. He's going to set up the kingdom that he's only inaugurating here in his first coming. And when the final judgment of all mankind will take place. And he's telling his disciples through this whole time, watch, be ready for this day that's coming at an unexpected time in the future. We need to know that because now as we come to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we see that this parable is not given on its own. It's actually given in the middle of three parables, all told in sequence. Parables uh, that that all have to do, though, with the same subject. So that's helpful. This is kind of one of the more well-known ones. But all three of them come with the same idea, looking ahead, helping us to be ready for that final day when Jesus kingdom comes by making the most of the opportunities that he's given us now. So, now that we've established those things, let's look first of all at a good and faithful investment. A good and faithful investment. If you look at verse 14, we see there Jesus begins with a story with the words, again, it will be like, now those words, again, it Show us, okay, he's, he's continuing in a series of stories, and that's how we know Jesus is telling another story that also is carrying on from the first one. So that's why we say this parable sits in the middle of three, and it's talking about being ready for the future, being ready for this second coming. And the scene Jesus sets for this story, look again at verse 14, he says, It will be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To the one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went away on a journey. So that's how Jesus sets up this story for us. This is where that language of the talent comes in. That's why this parable is often referred to this way, the parable of the talents. But already, this is one of those places where if we're not careful, we can miss the entire point of what Jesus is trying to say here. How do we do that? Well, by anachronistically applying a meaning of the word talent that was not meant in Jesus' day. We take our modern 21st century meaning and we try to apply it to this parable and it doesn't really work. Okay, so, so if we try to do that, we, we read this, we say, oh, okay, so a, a talent. Yeah, okay, so we think it's abilities. Because we talk about someone who's really talented at this or that. I mean, just this past week, we got to see uh, Sophia's uh, dance show. Uh, it was amazing. We would say, a really talented dancer. We use that language all the time. That's not the meaning here, unfortunately. So if we get it wrong, we come to this and we say, okay, one guy had five talents. Okay, so he could sing, dance, act. was really good at calculus. And he could juggle. And we try to like, plug in different things. Last guy, we think, man, he must have had the talent of making good excuses. I don't know what it is, but we we come at it that way, and then we think, okay, so right, if that's what this parable means, then what Jesus is getting at here is we're supposed to use our talents to serve him, or one day he's going to come back and be really mad and punish us. Got to use your talent, or God's going to be mad at you. That's sometimes how this parable is uh, unfortunately used by parents who want their kids to practice piano or violin. Look at the parable of the talents. You see how mad? Okay, but that's wrong. 
That's not the meaning of this. Problem with that is that, first of all, talent. Talent in Jesus' day was actually a unit of measurement. It was a unit of measurement here, a measurement of amount of money. Now, we don't know exactly how much it says here. The little footnote down here says more than $1,000. Apparently, that's not right. Apparently, some big brain has worked this out, and they said that a talent, actually, in Jesus' day, if you take a $15 an hour, 2,000 hour a year work year, one talent is worth 600000 U.S. Okay, so all of a sudden, maybe we don't feel so bad for the guy that just got one talent. Now we're like, well, bro, you got 600 grand. He's still doing pretty good. Second problem is, we see at the end of verse 15, Jesus says, each man was giving, he's given these certain number of talents according to his ability. See that there? According to his ability, which right away shows us these can't be abilities because he gives them according to their abilities. So again, we're talking about money and the NIV, the way that it translates this, helps us understand we're talking about money. And now we know we're talking about a lot of it. So maybe you say, all right, okay, fine. If it's not abilities the master gives his servants, then what is it? Okay, we're saying in this context it was a lot of money. But you're also saying, Pastor, that uh, these stories illustrate, Jesus is trying to illustrate something, about what the coming kingdom will be like when he returns to judge the earth. Okay, so if I'm trying to put these things together, the master going away on the journey, is that like that's Jesus? Okay, we're going to say Jesus is the master going away, okay, and the servants, his servants, that's probably us. Okay, what is it? What is God giving talents to each individual look like today? What does that look like for us? Great question, because if you're like me, most of us will say, okay, I'll check my, my bank app. God hasn't put no 600 grand in my bank. So what is it? And I believe the answer we see to that question as we continue to read. Look now at verse 16 and 17. Jesus goes on, The man who had received five talents went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. So the master goes away on his journey after handing out these talents, and Jesus says, at once, immediately, the first two guys take what was given to them and they put it to work, doubling it, doubling what they had initially been given. So clearly, although it's not explicitly stated here, either these two guys were like incredibly entrepreneurial. They're just like, oh, sweet, I got a great opportunity. I know what to do. Or... There was an unspoken expectation that came along with the giving of the talent that these guys just understood, and so they got to work. And if we read verse 19 now, skip down there, I think it settles between us the question about which one it is. Look there. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. He settled accounts. So after a long time, the master comes back, and look at that specific wording, settled accounts. Settled accounts with them. That tells us already something. Theologian R.T. France says this in verse 19. Settled accounts makes it clear that they had been given the money specifically for trading. And the profit accruing was no unexpected bonus, but what was intended from the start. Pastor author Ray Stedman says it this way. It is the unspoken implication that the master expected these servants to invest the talents he distributed in such a way as to produce gain. The talent is not given to the servant for his own use. It remains the property of the absent master. And I think that last sentence is key. The talent given by the master is not given to the servant for his own use. It remains 
the property of the absent master. We need to keep that in mind. I mean, because if you're like me, we just, we breeze past all kinds of details in here. Look at verse 14 again. Look at what he says. It'll be like a master going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Whose property was it? The master's. And, And he's, is he giving these talents to his servants? Is he just saying, here you go. Here's a nice gift for you. Just do whatever you want. Enjoy yourself. No. The word specifically says, entrusted them. Entrusted them, verse 20, with these things. Entrusted has the specific idea of of putting something in the care and protection of someone else, not giving them ownership. These things are put in their trust to care for, to steward. So the talents are entrusted to the servants, not given, and they are entrusted with the expectation of work. The expectation of investment to see them grown, to see them expanded. I don't know, to our modern ears, that might sound unfair, unjust. But when you look at the story, do you see anything that would indicate these guys felt they were treated unjustly? At least the first two? They go to work immediately, right away they start working, and the joy with which they present their gains, I think it shows us they had a very different understanding of the unfairness that we see. If you look at their responses in verse 20 and 22, you can almost hear their heartfelt pride as they present their gains to the master. Like, look, look what I did with the money you gave me. Almost like a a child with a Father's Day present they made at school. Look what I made you. You can almost hear that tone when they present their gains to the master. You know what their responses sound like? They sound like love. They sound like genuine, heartfelt love for their master that made working on and investing what he entrusted to them both a joy and a privilege, which is why I think that they so easily offer back what they'd earned. And the well done, come and enter into your master's happiness, I think shows us that this entrusting with expectation was also exactly what the master expected as well. That's what he intended as well. So what is Jesus trying to teach us here? What is he trying to teach us about the coming kingdom? What is he trying to teach us about the judgment that we all must face at the end of time through this story in order to make us ready? I think he wants to see at least two things. First of all, the master is coming again. The master is coming again. And although he's been gone for a long time, Jesus is trying to show us here. He wants us to know in no uncertain terms, I am returning one day, and when I do, I will settle my accounts with you. Jesus is saying, what I've entrusted to you, use it in such a way that demonstrates that you believe that I'm actually coming back. I guess the first thing we see here. Secondly, no. Clearly, God doesn't drop millions of dollars into our bank accounts, at least not most of us. But although they always remain His, He does entrust us with all kinds of things of great value in this life, doesn't he? Well beyond material possessions, uh, houses, cars, wealth, although those things would certainly be included, think of some of the most valuable treasures in your life right now. Think of your spouse, your children, your deep friendships and family relationships, your job. 
your interests, your intellect, especially your salvation. These are all priceless possessions entrusted to you by a loving, benevolent God, and all, as the story goes to show us, given to each of us in different measures according to our abilities. They're given to each of us according to our abilities, but with the identical expectation of stewardship and investment given regardless of how many were given. You see that the expectation on each of these servants is the same no matter how many talents they've been given. Are you beginning now to see a little bit more about how this story helps make us ready for Jesus' return? Are you beginning to see some of what is valued, Jesus is saying, in his kingdom? Think about your life for a moment. Think about your own specific life and all the priceless treasures that you enjoy. Picture them in your mind. Look over to them if they're sitting beside you. Do you really think those things belong to you? Do they really belong to you? Do you think the one who entrusted you with that spouse, with those children, with that job, with those friends, gave you those things solely to be enjoyed by you? Or is there more expected as servants of the king? Is there more expected of us? Because here's what I believe Jesus is getting at in this description of these good and faithful servants. When we know and love God, we will increasingly see all of what we've been given and entrusted with, not as possessions, but as opportunities. I'll say that again. When we know and love God, we will increasingly see all that we've been given and entrusted with, not as possessions, but as opportunities. Opportunities from his hand to invest, to build, to grow and widen the kingdom of God so that one day when we stand before God to settle accounts, we too can lay down our own multiplied treasure and also receive his well done. That's the reason he's given us these things. And yet there's a problem And the problem is, whenever our understanding of God's talents or of the God who gave them is wrong, whatever else our words may say, we end up seeing God's property as ours. This is mine. This is my kids. This is my house. This is my bank account to do what I want with. And we see God as harsh and unjust for requiring anything in return for what he's entrusted us with which is exactly what we see demonstrated in the third servant who was given just one talent. So let's look lastly here at this missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. Now my guess is there's not a person in here who hasn't either heard a story of missed opportunity or who hasn't lived one. Uh, That's got to be all of us. Uh, I was reminded again this past week of how back in the year 2000, Blockbuster Video. Remember Blockbuster Video? They were offered the opportunity, the year 2000, to purchase Netflix, and they turned it down. They turned it down. Now, <clears throat> the, the, the CEO of Netflix, he wanted $50 million. even by today's standards. That's not, you know, small chump change, and yet, they just, they didn't go for it. And when you think of the fact that even in 2015, the market value of Netflix was already almost $20 billion, it would have been a good investment, right? So... It's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity, but why did it happen? Why? 
Well, when we look at the post-mortem, what it shows is that Blockbuster, one of the biggest game and DVD distributors at the time, simply misunderstood the changing market. They misunderstood changing technology, and as a result, misunderstood what was being offered to them with the purchase of Netflix. And as a final result, Blockbuster lost their position, prominence in the market, and eventually they closed all their stores. You don't think, you're not going to find a Blockbuster today. And when you look at the words and actions of this third servant in Jesus' story, I think we see painfully similar circumstances. Painfully similar. Look with me, first of all, at verse 18. After recounting the eager, ambitious investments of the first and second servant, Jesus says this, But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Without even knowing anything more about the cultural implications of this servant's actions that the people in Jesus' day would have easily understood, the comparison of the servant's actions alongside each other is meant to stand out as strange to us. It doesn't follow the pattern. This one invested, this one invested, this one dug a hole and buried it. It's meant to stand out to us as strange. The first two servants, they're displaying love and devotion to their master. This third servant's action is displaying suspicion and contempt. Again, verse 19 tells us, at some point in time, a long time later, the master comes to settle accounts with the servants. And once again, Jesus holds up all of these servants' responses in order to compare them beside each other. First two servants begin their address to their master with expressions of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the privilege of being entrusted with this property. The third servant begins his address there in verse 24, instead with his evaluation. He starts with his evaluation of what he thinks he knows about his master's character. Look with me there, verse 24. Comes to the, the one who had received one talent, came and master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Investing where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Where you hear reverence, thankfulness in the tone of the first two servants, you can almost feel the scarcely veiled smugness and pride of this third servant in his response, can't you? Ray Stedman, again, comments this way. When the master returns, the man has a little speech, carefully prepared to justify it all. Evidently, he had rehearsed it many times. You are, he says, a basically unreasonable man. You expect other people to do the dirty work while you get all the benefits, and if they should fail to satisfy your expectations, you're quite ready to accuse them as thieves. So I was afraid to risk what you gave me, lest I should lose it, and I would have to face your wrath when you returned, but I have outwitted you. I have kept your talents safe for your return. Here is exactly what you gave me. You and I are even. Clearly this servant feels he's outwitted his master. But as Leon Morris rightly points out, his excuse for doing nothing with what he was entrusted with ends up undermining his entire defense. For if he knew his master was this hard man, reaping, if he knew this stuff about him, he also knew that he had been expected to do something profitable with the money that he'd been entrusted with. He's shooting himself in the foot. He's sawing off the branch he's sitting on. 
And in verse 26, we see this is exactly the case. Having heard quite enough, thank you, the master replies by saying, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew? You knew this, hey? You knew I was harvesting where I hadn't sown, gathering where I hadn't scattered seed? Well, then you should have at least, he's saying, you should have at least put my money uh, on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. That, that, that question mark at the end of verse 26 is, is, is excellent because it shows the master isn't agreeing with the servant's assessment of his character. He's simply using his own words to now condemn him. And condemn him he does. We see the closing verses. This man is stripped of the one talent he does have and thrown outside of the master's presence where there is darkness and punishment. So what does this mean for us today? What is Jesus showing us here now about what is valued in his kingdom and what is despised in his kingdom? What do we see? Well, I think the first thing we see, just as we covered in the first point, is that God's property is clearly entrusted to his servants with the expectation of investment, not preservation. He entrusts us with these things to invest, not to hang on to and keep safe. Or as one commentator put it, to have done no harm is praise for a stone, not for a man. And I think it's here we really need to stop and and take some time together as individuals, as a church family. Stop you and I and really think about those things that we just were thinking of earlier. Those, Those opportunities, those great treasures that God has given to each of us. We really need to look at them and and examine our attitude towards those opportunities that have been given to us. Husbands, do you really think that all God expects of the wife that he's entrusted you with is that you would just stay married until one of you dies? Is that all God expects of that opportunity he's given you? Parents, Do you really think all God expects of the kids he's entrusted you with is that you would just be able to keep them fed and alive until they turn 18 and you can turn them loose? Is that it? Students, do you really believe that all God expects of the mind that he's given you is that you would just complete your degree, get a great job, and then just enjoy all the comforts of life because of it? Is that all? Is that all he has for you? Do you really think God has no better use for those things than just for you to hold on to them? I think Jesus' story reveals that returning God's talents to him in their original packaging, it shows both a misunderstanding of the character, the true character of God, And it will also bring about his justice and wrath, not his thanks and praise. Why? Because we were entrusted with these things with expectation. With the expectation we'd use them. Yes, we'd enjoy them, but we'd use them in order to build and grow them and to be more. Not to turn them back in undamaged. The second thing we learn is that presuming on God's character leads to missed opportunities. Remember the third servant's words to the master about what he knew about what his character, what kind of man he was? 
Now, of course, he could not have been more wrong, but because he was unwilling to admit the fact that he didn't actually know his master at all, he continued on in pretense. He just continued to go through the motions, and he continued to go through the motions in fear, constantly living in fear of his master because he didn't know what he was truly like. And because of that, missed out on the good intent that the master had for entrusting him with that talent. He missed the opportunity he could have had to receive the master's well done and enter into my rest. In fact, this servant's actions, as I was reading it, it, his words and his actions sound eerily similar to Adam's words all the way back in Genesis 3 after he'd eaten the forbidden fruit. Remember, God goes looking for Adam and Eve after they'd taken the forbidden fruit. And what does Adam say when he finds him? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked So I hid. When we don't understand the character of our Father, our response to Him is one of fear. And when we're afraid of Him, we hide from Him. When we truly know God, there is no fear. Even in our mistakes, even in our sin, there is no fear. We don't have to hide because we know His character. We know His gracious, loving character. Adam, in that situation, he was demonstrating both his exposure, his his shameful exposure, as well as his ignorance of God's good character. And as a result, he and Adam and Eve are expelled from God's presence, missing out on a world of opportunities they could have had in the garden. And it's no different for us today. It's no different for us. I don't know where this... I don't know where this finds you this morning, where this touches your own heart. I think Jesus' good intent behind this story, as I've said, is he wants us to be ready for the day of his return. That's why he's telling us the story. He wants us to be ready for the time when he will return and when he will settle accounts with us all. But positively stated, think about it. Think about the amazing opportunities we have. Our master has entrusted us with these incredible, undeserved blessings in our life. What are we going to do with them? The opportunities are endless with these valuable treasures that he's placed in our hands. He's trusting you with them. He's giving you the keys to the the nice car. He's letting you use the nice dishes. What are you going to do with them? Sadly, most of our response to this story is often one of fear ourselves. We, we respond with fear. We're scared by this. I mean, it forces us sometimes to even question and doubt where we stand with God. Because as we read this parable, didn't you hear pretty clear salvation language in there as well? I mean, isn't, isn't entering into the Master's happiness, isn't that a referral to heaven? Eternal life in God's presence and joy? And isn't a place of darkness and weeping referring to an eternity separated from His presence? And it makes us say, whoa, what? Where, where am I? Uh, what, what does this mean? And also, all of Jesus' language about entrusting and working and investing can make it sound like, well, man, maybe our salvation really is something that we have to earn. Maybe it's not a free gift of grace after all. If that describes any of your struggle this morning, I want to leave you with two encouragements as we close this morning. First of all, Maybe you look at the pattern of your life 
and you realize that whatever, whatever you might say about your relationship with God, you realize that the reality is much of your relationship with God is pretense. You, you go through the motions of believing in God, but you know that when you come here on Sunday morning, you don't really know or love the God that we sing or talk about. You know that you don't really believe in all the things that we're singing, even though you're able to pretend and go through the motions. And if you look at the things, that the treasures that God has entrusted you with, you know, if you're honest, that the majority of those things you just use for yourself, they're not being invested at all. If this story has revealed that in your heart this morning, while God is neither honored nor fooled by that pretense, there's also a tremendous amount of hope for you in this passage this morning. There's a tremendous amount of hope here. Do you know why? Because the master hasn't returned yet. He hasn't returned yet. Which means when you can be honest about the true state of your heart, hey, this is where I am. Just kind of like excuses, gloves, masks off. This is where I'm at. When you can be honest about that, now you have a whole new opportunity. A whole new talent is offered to you where now you have the opportunity to turn. You have the opportunity to turn at last in repentance. Surrender the own goals and ideas for how you want to use God's stuff and see it instead as opportunities to serve him. And when we do that, Jesus says, when you turn, when you turn to me in repentance and surrender, you will be healed. Your eyes will be opened. And you will receive one day my well done and be welcomed into my presence. You have that opportunity now because the master has not yet returned. Secondly, if you look at Jesus' story this morning and you see it describing more of just a works-based righteousness, you have to earn your way into God's kingdom, that can be a crushing reality and cause us to, to switch back to responding to God in fear instead of in love. Always wondering if you've done enough. Did I serve God well enough? Did I do, did I do enough devotionals this week? Did I pray enough this week for God to accept me? I don't, I don't believe that's Jesus' intent at all in this story. But if that's where you are at, the hope for you this morning is that what I believe Jesus is describing here in the comparison of these two servants is simply what James later on reiterates later in the New Testament. Simply this. All he's showing us is that genuine faith in God will demonstrate itself in acts of faith and obedience. The one who truly has a faith in God will demonstrate that faith with the fruit of the Spirit. You'll see it. That's all he's showing us here. And when we truly know and love God, we don't obey Him in order to be accepted by Him. We obey Him because we already are accepted. My prayer for us this morning, first of all, is that our Good Shepherd, the revealer of God's truth, would open our eyes and ears more and more this morning to understand this story as He's written it, to understand the secrets of the kingdom, but also... I want us just to take a minute right now because as I always say, we end these services and everyone just takes off, we head off for lunch and we forget. Let's take the time right now to just take one minute. I want you to think about one opportunity that you've been given. Just think of one. And ask God to, to show you and to give you the strength to begin this week 
to invest it differently? How does God want you to invest that opportunity, that talent, that gift that he's given you differently this week than you have been? In a way that it might be grown, that it might be developed, that it might be better stewarded? What is that thing? prayer for us as we leave this morning is that we would work and labor to invest what God has so graciously entrusted to us so that on that last day, we too may hear his well done. Let's pray.